Okay, our passage for today is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It is well known as the government passage. And it also a passage that is consistently um, reinterpreted by whomever's reading it. Yeah, exactly. So let's read the passage together as we find in the text. You'll see that I rearranged it a little bit to give it a um, a flavor to the order in which the topics are addressed. Let's start together in verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For those are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I know because this is April, we all want to avoid verses 6 and 7. Because uh, taxes are due in two weeks, for those of you who know about that. Um, I also brought back my favorite little item, a can of worms. Because that's what this topic is all about, it is a can of worms. There is so much. It, just the overwhelming amount of material uh, when it comes to a Christian's response or responsibility to government. In fact, if you want to have fun and enjoyment, you could read Wayne Grudem's book, Politics, which is only about 800 pages long. <laughs> and he goes through every possible aspect of it. So, I, had to, I was debating how best to approach this, because you can approach this canonically. I mean, just go through the exposition of the text. You can also come at this topically, because it's as if each verse raises its own cans of worms. So I thought I'd kind of do a little bit of a hybrid, um, but focusing on the text, because that's what we're here to do, looking at the text. But I have a couple things as a preamble. When you look at the book of Romans, 
this passage, verses 1 through 7, seems like an interruption to the thought flow. He spent 11 chapters talking about doctrine, the basics and the, the, the foundations of the faith. Then starting in chapter 12, you have the first two verses is all about your internal body and soul and your sacrifice to what it means to live as a believer. Then in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, he talks about the body of Christ as the church. And then verses 9 to 21, which we um, reviewed the last time we were together, pretty much was about the community, to love one another. So you go from internal to the body of Christ, and then to the community and those within and without the community itself. And now we go into politics. So if you think about it, it actually is a natural progression. Starting internal and going further and further and further. Because there are those there are certain scholastic critics that say that these verses were not written by Paul, but were written by some Roman <laughs> later to try to keep the Jews in their place. Well, that doesn't make sense either, because that would mean they would have had to get into Peter's writings and Acts and, you know, mess up the whole Bible. They would have had to insert themselves in a lot of places. The historical context, I believe, is, um, let's just say, is applicable to a certain extent. Was Paul writing to a people that lived in a democracy? No. Did they live in even the American form of a republic? No. It was a dictatorship. And what did the emperor declare himself to be? Divine. God himself, which then would be worshipped. So we have to remember, as especially in our room right here, as Americans, we cannot look at Romans from a, an American point of view. You can if you'd like, but you may end up misinterpreting what you read and misunderstand. For this reason, I can quote Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. <coughs> and there's some truth to that. Any human form of government has failure built into it because it's made by humans. And if you want to go back to your Old Testament, what was the first form of government? Theocracy. God was the ruler. And the people finally rebelled, and God finally said, oh, all right, have fun with this. 
And so they picked Saul. Yay! The handsomest guy in the room. And he started okay, but didn't turn out the best. The other context you must remember is approximately 10 years before Paul wrote this letter, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from the city of Rome because of trouble with a belief in Christus, Christos. There was rebellion and um, uh, unrest. And so he just got rid of all the Jews. It was just easier just to expel them. Well, they've all started to come back now. But many Jewish citizens held the belief, and you can find this belief found in Deuteronomy 17. I'm just going to read the verse to you so you have actual language. Chapter 17, verse 15 Laws concerning Israel's kings. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, but you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, you do not bow to a Gentile king. And that has been God's law. Established in the beginning. So, you also must remember a little bit more of the Jewish history. Remember the Greeks came in in about 300 BC, 200 BC, something like that, and conquered Israel and the, uh, the Greek rulers defiled the temple sacrificing a pig on the altar, the worst thing they could do. And so the Maccabees rose up, threw off the Greek rulers, and established the country of Israel to its former glory. It actually had borders that were equal to what Solomon's time. Now this is during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New. The Jews were in charge of their own destiny. Didn't work out real well because when the original rulers started passing away, the subsequent ones began infighting and they got weakened and weakened and weakened. Then they were threatened by um, nations from the east. And so they reached out to their strongest western neighbor, Rome and asked Rome to come in and give them help. And within very short order, the Romans took over. And here we are again with a Gentile organization and kingdom ruling over the Jewish people. And so there's this constant tension. This later blew up about 20 years after Romans was written when there was an uprising in Jerusalem. They threw off the Roman rulers in Jerusalem. And so the emperor sent his son-in-law, I think it was his son-in-law or his son, Titus, to go down there and clean up the mess. And he did it by leveling 
the city and leveling the temple. And that guy Titus later became emperor himself. And there is actually a arch built in Rome to Emperor Titus that features the destruction of Jerusalem. And you can go visit it today if you like. You can walk up and you can see. In fact, there's always been questions what was actually in the temple of Jerusalem because we don't know because it was all destroyed. Well, they have reliefs carved into this archway of the loot that the Romans pulled out of it. So this is a historical context of government. However, one more little trivia bit. Who was the emperor right now as Paul is writing this? His name starts with the letter N. Nero. You know, little happy, joyful Nero. <laughs> Very calm, cool, and collected Nero. And musical too. And musical too, exactly. Um, they do say historically that right at this moment when Paul's writing these letters, this is Nero's um, less, how did I write it here? Uh, less of a tyrant time. He wasn't as bad as he became later. Where we hear, when we hear of Nero, we think of the end. But at this time, you know, he was definitely an emperor. He wasn't exactly a happy-go-lucky guy. But he was still an emperor. <clears throat> Reinhold Niebuhr wrote about the establishment of the state. Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. And then in the Federalist Papers, written by our founding fathers, in number 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal co controls on government would be necessary. So in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. So, I was joking earlier with Tom, and I said, I'm going to be saying this in the class. So when Christ returns the second time, is he going to be riding an elephant? Or a donkey? Is he going to be a Republican or a Democrat? Which is he? Hmm. I don't think it's either. So that's my preamble. And then we start into the text itself because it gets sticky really fast. Let every person, no exception. It doesn't say except for the, except for the Democrats. It says let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And the word to be subject is a military term meaning a subordinate. Mm -hmm. 
You will follow the rules. You will follow your superior. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Boy, that makes me uncomfortable when I'm not happy with our government leaders. It really does. You know, I know every one of us in this room at some point, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, have been frustrated with the government leader. Even though you voted against them, they still doggone it won. And then they're messing everything up. Does that kind of sound like you? God's got a plan. Does it sound like your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents? This has been an ongoing challenge. And so what do we do with this verse? We have to remember Nebuchadnezzar came along from Babylon and wiped out Judah. He wiped out the Israelite people, destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple, slaughtered thousands, captured more thousands, and deported them to Babylon. And yet, Jeremiah 26, 27, verse 6, God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant, and that he gave him all the land that he currently rules over. Boy, I wish he hadn't said that. I wish he had said, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to smite him. No, he said, you're my servant. You were my vehicle in this punishment of my people. Later, in Daniel 9, in Daniel 4, and it's verses 17, 25, 32, and in 521, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. Daniel writes that whoever is in charge is put there by God. But we also have to remember Isaiah chapter 40. I just love the, the contrast of these verses. Isaiah chapter 40, very well-known passage. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you un have not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is God, He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. And scarcely are they planted, scarcely is they sown, scarcely as their stem takes root in the earth, God blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So yeah, God put them in place. He also brings them down. Hmm. So there is someone in charge. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of suffering among people in the interim. 
One thing about this verse, uh, one guy wrote it, he said, I don't think you can justify joining a militia and holding up in, in Waco after reading this verse. You really can't. You must be in submission to the governing authorities. It's also interesting to realize that Christianity is not anti-government. Law and order is a good thing. First Peter, another very appropriate passage. Anytime you're reading Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, you need to read 1 Peter. And anytime you're reading 1 Peter, you need to read Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Well, I'll actually read beyond it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Oh, doggone it. He ends with the phrase, honor the emperor. Peter says this. Paul is saying this. Maybe we better listen. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So Richard Halverson was the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. <coughs> um, he was actually replaced by Lloyd John Ogilvie, if you think of history and know any of these names. Um, he wrote, To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But it does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy. And, Christ, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. Uncomfortable yet? on both sides is one justifying why it's okay for us to have a revolution right now yep. and the other one saying no we can't have a revolution yes right now. <laughs> it, in fact I wrote this down here this is a quote from a pastor Stephen Cole you may know that name he's was a pastor up in Flagstaff a mm -hmm. church up there and his sermons are really good they're online available to, at any time he writes this well I'm grateful for America and all that it stands for one could argue that the rebellion against Great Britain by America does not have biblical support. 
because it was about taxation without representation in essence. And you want to go, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, so like you said, there were both sides from the pulpit were arguing. You can also walk over just a few years later and walk over into Germany in 1935 and find pastors preaching against the totalitarian rule of the fascists and Nazis and those that were supportive using this passage. Ouch. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took, he, yeah, he, he actually was a pacifist. I don't know if people know that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. But he ultimately got involved in the assassination plot of Hitler because he felt it was just, this was too much. And he paid for it with his life. So there's another, and of course, verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And one pastor, uh, writer, I should say, one writer brought up number 16, which I had not thought of, but it was the rebellion of the priests of Korah. They rebelled against Aaron and Moses and felt that Aaron and Moses had taken their rulership too far. And so they, along with, um, it said, a large number of people, 250 chiefs, and a number of well-known men. In other words, it wasn't just a few ignorant rabble-rousers. It was a large, significant group and they rebelled and they wanted to tear down and take take over god was not happy and god basically pronounced judgment on the people of israel for doing this and if it weren't for in verses 46 through 48 the intercession of moses and aaron god would have wiped out the people of israel and a plague began to flood through the populace. And Aaron and Moses prayed and said, please relent, please withdraw your judgment. And God did, but 14,700 people died. Now, if that happened in today's society, it would be news. For so much of us, it becomes a footnote in history we don't even think about. But the people rebelled against authority. A God-appointed authority. And we go, well, but it was Moses. Yeah, but it was also Aaron, the golden calf builder guy. So, you know, there's imperfections everywhere. I know there's other ways of looking at it, but I just want to... You just have to really think about this. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. So when is civil disobedience okay? When they tell you to wear a mask? When they tell you to get injected with something? When they tell you that abortion is okay? 
when they tell you that drag queen day is okay in your elementary school? At what point is civil disobedience okay? Well, we'll get into that later, but I'm just raising the issue right now. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna plan on being out of time by, by the time we get to that question. Two weeks, yeah. Two weeks, I'll, I'll just let, let you guys hang on that. Because verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and receive his approval. It's this brought to mind, it's one of these tiny little silly anecdotes of life. So I was taking a, a car from the airport back to the house after a business trip. And you know, every once in a while, you get a driver who's chatty and just talkative and we're kind of going back and forth and he made some comment about oh, the government overreach you know they're listening in on everything they can hear our conversation right now and I went I have nothing to hide do you and he got real quiet and he goes oh I see what you mean and I said because you know if the government wants to listen in I probably wouldn't be very happy about it it's infringing on my privacy and my rights as an individual, but I have nothing to hide. Because I tried to my best to live a life as a Christian and in do, doing good. He goes, well, I suppose, but he, he had no answer to that. He just wanted to talk about the conspiracies of the government trying to come in and take over his car. I don't know. But if you're doing good, you should have no fear, typically, okay, you know, let's, we can always find examples, especially today, people are doing good and they end up getting arrested. We also have a challenge right now, and I can speak to our current news. No society can survive very long with unbridled murder, theft, dishonesty, sexual immorality, and violence. These things tear apart the fabric of any society. The problem is, the solution to many is a totalitarian crackdown. And when a totalitarian crackdown occurs, then you don't have any of that in China. Do we want that? Well, no. But we don't want all this rampant... Okay, then, then you have the breakdown where the laws are not being enforced. So we have this, literally, the tearing of the fabric of a society, and we're all watching it in real time. And we're sitting here as Christians going, well, I'm reading this verse, but I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I know. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. The secularists have not wrecked divine things. The secularists have wrecked secular things. And it's a comfort to them. The titans did not scale heaven, but they laid waste the world. 
Whatever we seek to set up as the ideal world, without the help of our Creator, we end up with a dystopia, not a utopia. And the only way to establish and maintain an earthly utopia is by jackboot and bayonet. Only the brute and unchecked power of the state can seek to enforce the grandiose ideologies. And whenever they are attempted, they always result in mass graves and unparalleled bloodbaths. Wow. That was written 100 years ago. Verse 4 then says, For he is God's servant for your good. Really? That's my reaction. Sorry, I'm emoting. <laughs> but seriously, there's kind of go, no, that is not true. Well, who's the your? Is it you individually? Or is it society as a whole? Is it the fact that without government, you have anarchy? And boy, have we seen what happens in anarchy. We saw it in Rwanda. We're seeing it, where is it? Uh, the, is it in the Congo? The Congo, where it, you've got tribes just hacking each other to pieces right now. And it doesn't even show up in the evening news. Like, ah, whatever. Let them kill themselves. It's not America. Oh, yeah, we do have Chicago, but that's something else. Or someone calls it Chirac, not Chicago. Anyway, so we should not bear the sword, for he, the servant is your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You know, didn't we just read? In chapter 12 of Romans, do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he launches into this passage about government being the one. He even says, don't take vengeance in your own hands. Let God be the one. And then here he says, well, government is the one that's supposed to to create order. Well, I suppose that's true to a certain extent. But it's imperfect. Yes, it is. It's interesting. Some people use that middle phrase in verse 4 about do not, that the, 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 the state does not bear the sword in vain as a um, confirmation of capital punishment. This is used as a proof text. Okay, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. It also is the... Uh, a proof text for the validity of serving in the military. That the, the state has the authority to bear the sword and you have, because remember in Rome, it was conscription. They needed a, a group. They would go find a village and get all the able-bodied guys and take them off and stick a, stick a helmet on them and throw them at a wall. That's how it worked. <clears throat> um, and I was reminded, it's not in this text, but I'll bring it up anyway, just because I was reminded of it. Um, we knew a fellow, when we, we attended for about four years, we attended a Mennonite Brethren Church. And the Mennonite 
typically is a pacifist denomination. And we met this one fellow who, during the Vietnam War, he was a conscientious objector, but did not escape to Canada. He stayed here. And he was still drafted, but his service, we think, was to be a... Was it? We think it was the VA hospital downtown for two years at minimum wage. And his wife left him because she says, I didn't sign up for this because they had no money. They couldn't earn anything. There was destitution. And he paid a price for his belief about not serving in the military to take up arms, but he still had to serve, but he was served in a different capacity. And I just thought, that's quite a thing to do. And for those who remember the Vietnam era and the draft, my high school graduating class was the last, or I should say was the first in which the graduating seniors did not have to register for the draft. The draft had already been disbanded, but you didn't even have to register. Now you do again, I believe. You still have to now. They reinstituted the registration, which means the government could just tomorrow turn on the draft and they would enforce it. Hmm. Kind of sounds like COVID, where they can just snap the finger and place the government will on a people. Hmm. Verse 5. Therefore, <laughs> love the therefore. Therefore, one must be in subjection. No, I don't. Steve, read it again. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's an odd phrase, but it's not just to avoid punishment, to, but to be a light for others. Paul says in Acts 24.16, I always take pain to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Ray Pritchard put it this way, we support human government first because of wrath, meaning we fear punishment if we don't. That's why you slow down when you suddenly see a police car parked by the side of the road. Lawbreakers will be brought to justice. Second, we support government because of conscience, that is, because we know that God stands behind every human government working out his will for the human race. That means that anarchy is never an option for the Christian. We may disagree, we may vote against, we may picket, we may write letters, but we must never join the rank of the anarchist who says, down with all government. Such a view is thoroughly pagan. Even bad government is better than no government at all. To be more specific, Christians ought to be known as law-abiding citizens. In our day, some people have taken to shooting abortionists in an attempt to save the unborn. When will we learn that insurrection, lawlessness, and murder does not advance the cause of Christ? If we believe what Paul said, it will make us better Christians and ultimately better citizens. We may disagree, even disagree violently, but we will not resort to violence. 
When was that written? Hmm? When was that written? Uh, about 15 years ago. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right. I still haven't answered any of your questions, have I? Yeah, that's the point. I'm not here to be your authority. I'm here to make you think about this in your own heart and mind. Now again, we're, we still haven't gotten back to civil disobedience. We'll get there in a minute. But now we get to talk about taxes. <laughs> Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Ministers? Oh, you should see the gyrations of New Testament scholars with that word. It, ha it does mean ministers. They are the ones who minister, the administer, the admin. That's, it doesn't mean they're pastors. Okay, so don't make that mistake. You know, that say they are administers. They are ministers of God. They are there for a reason. And we... Oh, and I'll just read verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So let's come back to the taxation. We, obviously, you're going to quote Matthew 22, 21, where Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and what a God, what is God's. Because the Jewish leaders are trying to trap him. In a society where they were anti-Rome, and then they said, well, should you pay taxes? And he basically said, yeah, of course you should. But you should also pay to God what is God's. Don't just arbitrarily. I don't, have you ever met someone, I have, who believes that the U.S. tax law is, and, and taxation is actually voluntary? And you can read the tax code, and it suggests that it's a voluntary contribution on your part to the government. So this guy that I met, I mean, he got really, uh, let's just say, uh, evangelistic. It's a nice way of putting it. He tried for a half an hour to convince me. And he was going through all this stuff, and he says, I haven't paid taxes for 10 years. I went, really? And I keep thinking, so at what point am I going to visit you in jail? Uh, because he's been avoiding it, not for any other reason other than to make a point that taxes is voluntary. I'm going, wow. I said, are there a bunch of people like you? And he goes, oh yeah, we're a whole movement. I'm like, Good luck with that. <laughs> Pastor Ray Stedman, this is actually very funny. He admitted that early in his life, he wrote the check to the government to the Infernal Revenue Service. <laughs> <laughs> and it was still cashed. <laughs> He's like, okay. So the next year, he wrote it to the Eternal 
revenue service, and it was still cash. And he realized that that little bit of rebellion was very selfish on his part. And he then became a pastor and said, don't do that. They, it's a God-appointed thing. Um, so <laughs> I did, don't ever do this, but I did it. Back in the day of Rome, they had an income tax, a head tax, a poll tax, a road tax, wagon tax, crop tax, import tax, export tax, harbor tax, and bridge tax. That was just some of the taxes they had. We, in America, have self-employment tax, excise tax, social security tax, airline tax, cigarette tax, alcohol tax, gambling tax, gasoline tax, hotel tax, property tax, vehicle license tax, income tax, sales tax, estate tax, um, electric tax, gas tax, trash tax, cable TV tax, sugar, if it's in your Coca-Cola tax, and even in some states, a pet license tax. These are all called hidden taxes. So when you pay on the pump, you're not paying the gas company approximately 25 to 30% of what you're paying at the pump is taxes. In Chicago, they wanted to bid for the Olympics and so they raised the 911 surtax on the phone bill by $16. They lost the bid. The tax didn't go away. And you kind of go, okay. Now at that point, you know, you read all that and you start getting angry. You start getting frustrated. You start realizing that they're just taking advantage of you. They're hiding it from you. Um, sounds like we need a, res you know, a revolution. We need to throw the uh, cable TV into the bay. <laughs> like they did with the tea. Um, but no. Scripture says, to whom taxes owed, pay it. Now, <laughs> it's the other thing was where you wish scripture wouldn't do things like this. But there's always, you always we jump on the, the qualification in the phraseology. To whom taxes are owed, pay your taxes. To whom revenue is owed, pay the revenue. To whom respect is owed, I don't respect them, so I don't have to give them respect or to honor those to whom honor is due. Well, I don't honor them. You know what? That's a very dangerous road to get on. Well, I'll tell you, and I, it may not bother you, but it, it jars me and has all the years I've been here at Camelback when the pastor prays for the president that I did, did not vote for or prays for the vice president I did not well, none of us voted for the vice president, but anyway, you know what I mean. Um, or the governor, or the, or the mayors, and you're kind of going, well, wait, they need our prayers, especially those that are not believers. They, they have a responsibility, and man. You also have the problem in, there are certain circles in which they believe that you could, or should, 
if all Christians took over government, everything would be fine. The moral majority was a part of that. That was an entire movement. You have the, um, the, the um, what's my word here? Reconstructionists, uh, Greg Bashan and some others of that nature that basically say, if we can establish a human kingdom, godly kingdom, it will solve all the problems. And so they t come at it from a theological standpoint and many of them base this on a eschatological viewpoint of post-millennialism. That God's kingdom will be established and then Christ will come. So you see how this can get really different and you may even have some of your friends that have these conversations and you have to come back to this passage. So, I said I promised that I'd bring it up, but here we go. Oh, look at the time. Let's pray. No. <laughs> at what point is civil disobedience a proper response for the Christian? At what point? And I, I tell you, it's almost like we went on a trial run the last few years. Where the government, at least in America, from an American standpoint, where the government came in and made certain demands of the public, certain demands of the church, saying you cannot meet, or there's, you are limited to the number of people who can meet in your building based on its size. At what point do you stand up and say, no, I won't do that? I mean, there is the um, example in Acts 4, 4 and 5, where Peter and John are being told by the religious leaders to not talk about Jesus. They specifically restricted them. Of course, they ignored them. So we're a chapter later in chapter 5, and they are arrested and are being tried for their actions. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Whatever the consequences. So John Stott defined it this way. He said, the principle is clear. We're to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, and to disobey the state in order to obey God. Problem is, that's really hard to define. Is it a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego situation? Where the ruler builds a big idol and says, everybody pray to him. If you don't, we're going to kill you. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you go back and read that passage in Daniel 3, read what they said about the king. It is so respectful. And saying, you may be who you are, and we respect that position, but you cannot tell us to do this. 
and we will accept the consequences if we die? Okay. And of course, there's quite a story about that. You also have the Daniel and the lion's den story, very similar, where he's told not to pray. So he goes out in his balcony and he does. He didn't go in his closet. He went out where everyone could see. And everyone has this picture of Daniel as a young man. He was an old man at this point. Highly respected by the people. He had been a leader among the people. And he just basically said, "You no, you will not tell me not to pray to God. It's no. And I says, King says, okay, we got a bunch of hungry lions who are my pets, and try not to pet them when you get down there. Now it's interesting, uh, I found this little article called 12 Biblical Cases of Civil Disobedience. And a couple of them I went, oh, I never thought of it quite that way. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, they were told to I mean, all the babies were supposed to be killed, and they saved some, including Moses. Then you had those who parented Moses. They disobeyed. They hid the child. You have Elijah rising up against King Ahab. And uh, Ahab even said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You have the book of Esther with Mordecai and Esther, both of them standing up against King Ahasuerus. You have Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 38, my goodness, this guy was loud, boisterous, and just a pain in the side of the government authorities because he was declaring the sinfulness of the people. And they got fed up with him and threw him in a pit. King Zedekiah is the one who did it. And of course we had... We mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then also Daniel, the Daniel and Lion's Den. You have the wise men from the east in the Christmas story who actually defied Herod and didn't go back and tell him. They just left. Obviously, Jesus and the disciples. Um, you know, that, that one's kind of interesting because you have to then decide... Well, were they rebelling against the Romans or were they rebelling against the Jewish religious leaders? But the Jewish religious leaders were technically the civil servants to keep the people under control so that Rome would not come in and squash them. You have Peter and John, which we just mentioned, um, and also Paul and Silas later on, and they got arrested for their thinking. So yeah, there are places where civil disobedience is appropriate. Next one, and I'm, I'm going to be talking for a little bit here, so I hope you don't mind. Um, I once had the privilege of editing a book that actually won an award called Legislating Morality. Can you? Should you? And it's a very interesting point that the book makes. We legislate morality all the time. I think all legislation has an ought proposition. Do this or do that. It all has a moral component. All of it. 
That's, that's the basis of law. When I was in college, I remember people saying, you can't legislate morality. I'm like, every law has every some law. moral, you ought to do this or you ought to do that. It's, it's a lot of proposition. Yeah, and the, the difference is that people are saying, well, you can't legislate how I act. And I'm like, well, yeah, we can. We could probably legislate, let's see, I'm gonna count here real quick. One, two, three, four, Nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. These are now illegal. You can no longer wear glasses. We've not just made it illegal. Not for the environment. It's bad for the environment, um, you know, and we don't care that you can't see and that you're not a candidate for LASIK. Too bad, take them off now. Well, heck with you. I want to be able to read that law. <laughs> but you see how almost it's foolish to say, well, we don't legislate. Well, how is that moral? Well, because it's bad for the environment. It's causing, you know, landfill. It's, it's, you're using up glass that could be used for something else or metal. Well, Stephen Cole up in Flagstaff, um, he actually wrote an article about um, the idea of legislating morality in the local paper in Flagstaff. <clears throat> so there was an opinion piece where an author argued that imposing personal and moralistic beliefs challenges our freedom and disregards the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I pointed out that we impose personal moralistic beliefs all the time, as you mentioned. We have laws against rape, wife beating, honor killing, stealing, assault, murder, pedophilia, and other immoral behaviors, and rightly so, and we impose those moralistic beliefs on our society. The response to my article were unbelievable, and I'm quoting him. One man argued that murder, rape, pedophilia, and assault are crimes, but not bad morals. What? They're just simply against the law, have nothing to do with morality. Another lamented, it's true that our laws are informed by our collective beliefs. Unfortunately, those beliefs are often derived from a jumble of ancient religious texts. And he's hopeful. He said, fortunately, more and more people are discarding those antiquated religious beliefs in favor of a morality based on science and reason. And goes on to state proudly that he's in favor of women being allowed to kill their babies. He called it pro-choice and he chooses science and reason and freedom. Sadly, that man used to attend this church. So, one more thought, and this one really struck me. So in my, my reading, actually I've been thinking about this passage for a long time. Um, Lisa will attest to all the books I pulled out. I a bunch of them and I was grazing. Yes, I grazed Gruden's book on politics. Um, I'm not even sure I agreed with most of what he wrote, but that's another thing. He, he's smarter than I am, so he can have his opinion. What about Christians today who live in anti-Christian countries. What do they do with Romans 13? We as Americans, we can play this intellectual game all we want. 
And then we can get in our cars, go home, and come back to church next week without any pain or threat to what we do. So what about these others? Well, a fellow named Elliot Clark wrote an article in January of this year for the Gospel Coalition. And if you want to look it up, look up the article on the gospelcoalition.org site called Applying Romans 13 Around the World. And he interviewed pastors and indigenous leaders in Iraq, Saudi Arabia, uh, Brazil, other countries. And the response shamed me and should shame us. Nima Azalida of, in Iran said, some people think Paul is picturing an ideal government in Romans 13. But Paul acknowledges there's no authority except that which is established by God. Whatever authority, good or evil, we know, it's from God and thus falls under the purview of Paul's command. He sees it flowing directly from the previous imperative, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This man believes we should expect that most governments are evil and corrupt. Thus making our humble submission to that government a sort of Christian subversion to that evil authority. Isn't that interesting? Another pastor from the United Arab Emirates said, Paul was well aware of rulers who had mistreated people including himself. He certainly understood that unjust rulers had wrongfully crucified Jesus. As someone who had been hunted, beaten, and imprisoned by government authorities, Paul wasn't naive about the evils of the Roman Empire, and yet he still calls for submission to Rome. A pastor in Russia Romans 13, quote, applies to all times and systems as long as the sinful world requires such a structure as human authority. In other words, wherever there is human government, the normal Christian response will be submission. Another says that um, it's basically civil disobedience of the government should be rare and not common. According to that same uh, Russian pastor, he said, insubordination may be covert because the main goal is not to die heroically, but is to love effectively. What an interesting way of thinking about it. He also, another guy was saying that Romans 13 teaches that our disposition or our attitude is often more important than a governmental decision because Romans 12.9 says to love without hypocrisy a theme that resurfaces and continues in Romans 13.8 that says oh no one anything except love each other encourages Christians to understand their relationship to governing authorities as subsumed to Paul's broader appeal to love. 
I don't know what to do with that <coughs> other than to think about it. Go ahead. But don't you, you have to put what the things that you read earlier about, but when honoring man is dishonoring God, then God's only option is to honor God. And if you put that, layer that. Go ahead. So inside that, then you have what God asks. And God, God is asking us to submit to that authority that he put in place, even though I may disagree with it. Right? Wrong? Go ahead. I keep thinking of Corrie ten Boom in the Nazi government in the Netherlands. She disobeyed the authority. And paid the consequence. Her family did. Right, and it was not for any other reason than that she felt God's law was higher than yeah, she, was mm -hmm. she was protecting life, which is a way of loving in a higher way than mm -hmm. what the law was allowing. Right. So, I mean, boy, it, it's... It's not easy, is it? No. Go ahead. I was thinking of Daniel, though. The whole point of the reason why they made the law that they did is because they said they could find nothing against him except for if it was against his God. Yeah. So they made that law with the king in order to get Daniel. Right. So he obviously had been keeping all the law up to that point. Right. And we don't know what all those laws were. Yeah. There could have been things that we would say, well, you shouldn't have been following that law. So one of the examples in this thing here was a, um, it was, was in India, I think. Uh, I'd have to reread the passage. That churches have to submit the list of their members to the government. Mm. And he said, I must trust that God's will be done. And he submits the list. Mm -hmm. Because if he doesn't, the government comes in and <clears throat> the church can no longer meet at all. So is that right or wrong? Is it asking God to do to do something against God? Uh, yeah, it's like Chuck. Advocate, the church, the state could still. It, it's more often than not that once you submit that list, the state still comes in. And of course. Squashes, but right. I know what you're saying. Just, it's interesting, well, Chuck. I was thinking more of not uh, what if cases and things in Old Testament. I'd like to think more of today, mm -hmm. in my life lives that's where we're at now. Correct. So in the United States I feel that the Lord gave us this United States and the Constitution. And there's responsibilities as citizens that we have, just as Jesus had responsibilities as citizens there. So we have a lot of latitude, but it's not without responsibility. I think too many people aren't willing to take up the responsibility as a citizen. Mm -hmm. to do the part that they should be doing. Now, if I'm working for someone, I have certain things that I must do with the directions I'm given. Uh, as a citizen, there are many things as an option that I can choose to do to a degree. Mm -hmm. So over the years, I've been very effective in working as a Christian with politicians, mm -hmm. with my local uh, house, with the federal house, and, and I mean legislature, uh, and the President of the United States, or governor or, or my Maricopa County, you know, I get to know who are all these people, 
Mm-hmm. Who is directly that I can go to that will represent me mm-hmm. in causes and cases? So if I don't like a, a certain law, I have the ability to get that changed. But so many people just want to take all the benefits without doing their due part of being a citizen. Of well said. Citizen. Well said. So we, we need to be more involved and we need to be taking action. And it doesn't have to be gargantuan or threatening to be put in prison. But on many of these cases, if you feel in your heart there's something there that you feel that you have to disobey, before you do that, you have to remember you're taking, as the examples of what you give us, the consequences. Yep. So if I feel strong about something, I'm not going to pay my state taxes or whatnot, and they come and haul me in the court, uh, I have to pay for my disobedience. But if I feel strongly enough that that testimony may get others to rally and to move, see the masses will control how the laws are made and how they're followed. And we're seeing that right now. There's disobedience all over the place with two types of justice. Right. So I'm just saying we need to be more involved. We need to know what our people are, how to do it, and to find others who are involved. And, and it's like I said for the Arizona policy. If you've never gone on the internet or saw, seen them or supported them or just read the things that they're doing, the massive successes that they've had in the state for decades. Uh, so there are others who can come to our help or we can come to their help as a larger group to make much more impact. And what makes it interesting is you have certain religious groups, like the Jehovah Witnesses, for example, don't vote. And the Amish? They won't even swear on a Bible because that's not appropriate in their thinking. So you have, but they'll pay taxes without question. And and there is, in fact, was an article read recently that um, that was was one of these. Let's just call them religion editors in the newspaper, <laughs> writing about the poor, oppressed Jehovah Witnesses because of their stance on things like this. And I'm going, wait, they've been doing that for a hundred years. I mean, when is when did this become news? But it was based on their understanding of Romans 13. Interesting. So, aren't we glad that we solved all of your conundrums here? You see, when I came to this, I mean, seriously, I thought, could we just skip this section? Because it can get, people can get riled up, especially because we are in a society where our voice is allowed to be heard. We, are, we grow up with the right to speak our mind. There are so many societies where that is not allowed. You do not talk up. You do not speak because you will get squashed very quickly, very early, and sometimes by your own family. When we talk about the conversion, they convert to Christ and then they're persecuted. But that statement right there creates this tension. And boy, I'll tell you, I think when you come back and you just read this text, 
the way it's written, and to think about what Paul and what God is trying to say to us through Paul, you come back to it and go, huh, I need to accept God's authority, and to use your phrase, which you said in the first minute of the class, God has a plan. God is in control, not us. We can make differences. We should, when we have the opportunity and the right to do so. But, ultimately, as good citizens, whatever country, whatever land you are in, you are a testimony to those around you as a believer. If you're standing up there red-faced and screaming at someone because they think differently than you, or you go online and think you can change people's mind on Twitter, um, that's not going to engender the type of dialogue that's probably going to pursue and maintain change. It will just frustrate more people, including yourself. Anyway, let's pray. We have gone way over time. Lord, thank you for your word. Isn't it interesting how your word just comes right down to the very point where we get riled up and we think about something that isn't about our Christian life and our faith and our theology, but it's about how we need to act with our government and an outside authority. And we forget that you're involved in that too. Thank you for that reminder, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.